Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on food addiction, emotional, and habit eating. We're going to kind of cover the whole scope of it today in a very general fashion to learn more about this issue and how it pertains or could pertain to some of our clients. We're going to examine the difference between overeating and food addiction. Just like social drinking and alcoholism both involve alcohol, overeating and food addiction both involve food, but one is pathological or problematic, causes significant psychosocial distress, the other one not so much. We're going to evaluate some myths about food addiction. Explore the behavioral and biological mechanisms underlying the food addiction. We're not going to get super in-depth into that, but we are going to kind of touch on, you know, what happens when you eat high-fat, high-sugar foods. And we'll identify ways to address food addiction and triggers for food addiction or triggers for eating. So why do we care? Well, excessive food consumption is socially acceptable, and food addiction or food eating problems rarely cause imminent legal problems, so it can go unchecked for a long time. Um, people can overeat for a long time, and if again, if it doesn't cause them significant distress in one or more areas of life functioning, then, you know, we're really not talking about anything at this point. Um, but we want to understand that there are a lot of people who struggle with food and struggle with their weight from the time that they're knee-high to a grasshopper. Um, the average age of the first diet for a lot of American girls is eight. That's second grade. Okay, just kind of let that sink in for a second. For some people, addictive behavior started with food addiction. And when I say food addiction, I'm talking about using food as a mechanism to cope with distress uh, when other things seem to fail. For other people, food is used to help self-medicate depression, anxiety, or insomnia. They eat to try to feel better. Um, they eat when they're anxious. They eat to calm themselves down. They eat to distract themselves from emotional turmoil. And for insomnia, I think most of us have been guilty of it at one time or another. Sometimes we eat to try to help ourselves stay awake, and sometimes we eat to help ourselves get sleepy. Not that that's helpful, but 
you know, I know there are nights I'm laying there at two in the morning and I'm kind of wide awake. I'm like, well, maybe if I get up and have a snack, it'll help me feel sleepier, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. But anyway, um, for others, when their substance of choice was removed, food was available for self-soothing. When I was on the residential unit, we had, unfortunately, um, when, I, when I first started, the day-old Entenmann's stuff from the different grocery stores that they didn't want to sell anymore was donated to our facility. So we had a full countertop stacked three, four high of Entenmann's pastries constantly. High sugar, high fat, refined carbohydrates, um, real dopamine-inducing stuff. So our clients who were there who couldn't access their alcohol or their cocaine or whatever their drug of choice was obviously had something else that they could use. Now, is eating a pastry the same as doing a line of cocaine? No, but it helped them a little bit. So we saw a lot more emotional eating. We saw a lot more eating to replace their addictive behavior and had to address that because we would see people come in who'd be 30 pounds underweight or even normal weight and they would leave and they after 30 days they would have gained you know 15 20 pounds and it wasn't necessarily because they were malnourished Uh, so those were things that we needed to pay attention to because if we let them walk out and we hadn't addressed that then all they'd really done instead of coping with the stress was find a new way to numb it and we know that the reward and the soothing capacity of food is not nearly as rewarding and soothing that as some of the drugs they were taking. So when the food was not able to meet that um, need anymore, then the risk of them relapsing on their substance of choice was much higher. Um, regularly using food to self-soothe is, at the very least, a relapse warning sign, if not a full-blown relapse. So if people notice that they're eating when they're stressed and they notice that they're eating when they're depressed. They're noticing that they're probably not coping with that and dealing with the issue. They're numbing it or trying to avoid it. Food can become an addiction when it's used to escape from negative feelings and continues to be used despite negative consequences. And the person experiences psychological withdrawals and cravings when he or she cannot access the food and cope. So when we're talking about some of our, you know, DSM-diagnosed eating disorders, people are thinking about the food regularly. They're ruminating about the food. It's a major focus of their thought and their life for one reason or another. On the other hand, overeating is a bad habit, but it can be stopped with education, planning, and mindfulness. You know, I come from a family that we like our food. And it's not uncommon for us to overeat sometimes. Being cognizant. I mean, think about Thanksgiving. A lot of people on Thanksgiving, after Thanksgiving dinner, they're going to unbuckle their belt buckle at least one notch, if not just completely. And (laughs) so we want to pay attention to the fact of that overeating is not uncommon. When you go to a restaurant, now inside your stomach is about the size, when it's at rest, is about the size of your closed fist. Compare that to the amount of food on a plate at the restaurant and think about how much your stomach is having to stretch and then calculate the calories that are on your plate. We get way more food when we go to a restaurant than we really need for any one sitting. But as Americans, we're used to being part of the clean plate club. So overeating is a bad habit. Figuring out how to 
stop that if it's a problem for our clients is helpful. Um, one of the things that I suggest to my clients when they go out to eat is to get a takeaway box right away and put half of everything in there. That's already on the, on the table. And then they eat what's on their plate. And generally, they're, they're satiated after that. And they have a whole other meal to boot. Um, so that's one thing, one suggestion that people who are just merely overeating can use when they go to a restaurant to avoid overindulging and then feeling guilty later. And habit eating is a little bit different than overeating. Um, it is eating w- when you're not necessarily hungry. But habit eating is, often has more to do with a place or a time of day as opposed to sitting down and you just start eating and it tastes so good you're just going to keep eating. Habit eating, and I'm guilty of this, I'll come home, set my stuff down in the foyer, walk into the kitchen, and get a snack. That's just what I do. And I don't even think, am I hungry? Um, and it's one of those that I've had to work really hard to break, and I don't always break it. Um, but habit eating is something that we've typically learned over time. When I was growing up, we always used to, my mother and I would go to the grocery store, and then she would always bring a bag of chips or something up into the car, and we would eat on the way home. So I got used, and we ate fast food a lot, so I got used to eating in the car. So then when I was in the car, I always felt like I should have something to eat or drink. You don't need that. So having people look at the times when they're eating, and if they're just eating because that's what they're triggered to do, because that's what they've always done. Um, Experiments show that for some people, the same reward and pleasure centers of the brain that are triggered by other addictions are also activated by food, especially highly palatable foods. And this is true for most people. When you eat something that's high in sugar or fat especially, you're going to secrete some dopamine. You're going to have an increase in dopamine and an increase in serotonin, which makes most people feel calmer and happier, um, which can be really rewarding at times. Now, again, this is not nearly as strong as the impact from alcohol or cocaine. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that food can be a gateway, if you will. Um, If people are not coping with their stuff and they're just avoiding it, numbing it, what, what have you. Salt is another highly palatable food. Sometimes you'll crave things that are salty. Now, it's important, and this is why you want to have people with food issues, whether it's addiction, habit eating, overeating, whatever, work with a nutritionist. Because our bodies will crave certain foods if they are lacking in certain nutrients. When I get dehydrated, I crave iceberg lettuce. Um, iceberg lettuce is like 90% water, uh, which is probably why I crave it. But I crave salads. So if I'm craving a salad, I know that I'm probably low on salt uh, or low on water. When I start craving potato chips or popcorn or, you know, something salty, I need to figure out whether I am deficient in salt or something else. There are all kinds of charts online that can help you connect what you're craving with what nutrient you might be deficient in. Most nutritionists are going to say, keep a food diary on your mobile device so they can get a printout of the nutrients that you're getting, and you can kind of see what you might be missing. Once you attenuate the nutritional deficiency, generally cravings will go away if that's what was causing the craving. So you don't want to ignore all cravings all the time. You want to say, is there a reason for this? that is physiological, 
And if not, okay, what is the reason I'm having this craving? So common states for the person with an eating disorder or eating issues. Um, low self-esteem. They may be eating to self-soothe. They may be eating because that's the only way they feel like they get love. It's a surrogate, if you will. Um, but a lot of people with eating issues have low self-esteem. Believe in the thinness myth. If I were only thinner, I would be more lovable. If I were only thinner, I would be successful. And I encourage my clients and my kids to challenge this and look around at the successful people in the world, whoever they define as successful, and identify if they're all thin. Um, there's one singer that my daughter listens to, and I can't think of who it is right now, and I don't want to call her name incorrectly, that has put on a fair amount of weight since she was on um, America's whatever it was, the singing show. You can tell I watch a lot of TV. But anyway, um, but she's good with that. She's like, I am the happiest I've ever been. And yeah, she's overweight right now, but she is successful. She is happy. Um, so encouraging people to look at where happiness comes from and that thinness is just a state of being. Sometimes they need a distraction. A lot of times when we look at this, it's either the habit, so it's something that they do, and they could use a distraction to break that habit. It's self-soothing, so they're trying to distract themselves from their own internal states. Um, and, and we want to figure out what's the function of the food. Dichotomous thinking is really common, that all or, especially all or none thinking, um, as opposed to other cognitive distortions, I'm either thin enough or I'm not. And there, there's no middle ground. Uh, one thing I will point out, if you're working with somebody with an eating disorder, uh, especially with a clinical bulimia or, or anorexia, but even some others, um, it's important to try to avoid using numbers. So if you start using numbers and saying, well, that person got down to 85 pounds, the person with an eating disorder is going to go, oh, they did? Well, I can get down to 80. Let me show you. Because they want to be the best. Um, or they don't want somebody being thinner or more successful. So there's a lot of control issues here. They may have feelings of empty emptiness and have a quest for perfection. Again, thinking, if I were perfect, then I would be lovable. A lot of it always, a lot of it follows this thing of, if I were, then I would be lovable. They have a desire to be special and unique. So they want to be the thinnest. They want to be the prettiest. They want to be the one that has the 18-inch waist or whatever it is. Um, a need to be in control. A need for power. Many times people with eating issues have a sense of loss of control in some other area of their life. And food may be the one area that they can control. Or it may be the one area they feel the most out of control. Um, so it can go either way. Desire for respect and admiration. Our society puts a high priority on appearance for gaining respect and admiration. And think about um, any of these award shows where they have the red carpet and they're photographing people and just ripping them apart based on what they chose to wear and what they look like and what their weight is and Miss America pageants and all those things. It gives the idea, it gives the illusion that being pretty enough and being thin enough will get you respect and admiration. They may have difficulty expressing feelings, which is where the food comes in. 
Um, and it drives me crazy when I see the commercials for, you know, brownie bites or whatever that say, give yourself a hug, have a brownie bite. I'm like, that is not a hug. That is food. And we don't want to equate the two because we don't want people going, I need love, so let me eat a brownie bite. They may need an escape or a safe place to go. So if they focus on their eating um, and, and what it tastes like, then they're not thinking about other stuff. They may lack coping skills to deal with the emotional distress, so they're trying to numb it or avoid it. They lack trust in self and others. Other people have let them down. They've let themselves down. So they're kind of flailing and feeling out of control, and this gives them something to distract from that sense lack of trust. And they're terrified of not measuring up, which kind of goes back to this desire for respect and admiration and dichotomous thinking. If I am not respected and denied, respected and admired, then I'm not measuring up, which means I need to do something different. There's no in-between. And we can put perfection in there, too. Possible functions of eating. Remedy nutritional deficits. Talked about that earlier. Um, and we really want to have clients work with a nutritionist whenever possible. We can't make dietary recommendations. It's likely that they're nutritional profile is somewhat lacking. Most American diets are. So it would be good to get input from a nutritionist when feasible. Not everybody can afford or want to afford one. Okay, it can provide comfort, soothing, and nurturance. Covered that one. Well, maybe we haven't. Think about what, what do we do at birthdays? We eat cake and ice cream, high-fat, high-sugar foods. So we're combining a celebration with dopamine-releasing foods, and it's a happy time. Um, when there's a funeral, what do we do? A lot of us um, grew up in families where when there was a funeral, you brought over a dish so the person wouldn't have to cook for a while, but we're bringing food. Um, I know at my grandma's wake, we had more food than we knew what to do with. Um, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter. Each one of those has a big meal associated with it, and family too. But when I think about Thanksgiving, I don't think about the family coming over. I think about Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> Whoops. Um, but it's important to look at, you know, what does food represent for that person? What are they internalizing by eating this food? When kids are little and they do a good thing, a lot of times they're taken out to eat or they go to the doctor and they get a shot and they're brave for it, so they're taken out to eat. You know, a lot of times we, in our society, we use food as a reward, food to self-soothe. Um, so we want to look at the function. It can be attention or cry for help. If somebody is um, eating a lot and it has drastically changed their eating patterns, um, it can be a sign for help. Looking at some of the Hollywood stars over the course of the years, where when they're at their peak, they are generally really thin. Um, but then as their career kind of slows down, their weight seems to go up. Um, so does that mean that they were unhealthy and unhappy back then? Um, does it mean that they've just kind of let go of everything? What does that mean? And it can be perfectly normal for some people. It can be a sign that that person is feeling inadequate because now they're not the star. They're not the name that everybody talks about, which is another reason we see a lot of drug addiction problems, especially in child stars, when they go from being 
the center of everybody's world to, you know, the average Joe. Um, it can allow for discharge of tension, anger, or rebellion. I'm going to eat whatever I want. Or, you know, when I lived at mom's house, I wasn't allowed to eat this, so I'm going to eat it now. I know when I was in college, pizza was pretty much what we lived on for the entire first year. Um, it wasn't something we got home, got at home a lot. So, you know, a lot of us would order pizza like every night for dinner. Not healthy, not saying to do it, but it is sort of a form of rebellion. It's like, oh, the shackles are off. I can eat what I want. I can eat ice cream for dinner, for goodness sake. Predictability, structure, and identity. So if somebody finds their identity in food, maybe they find their identity in being a good cook, or they are... Um, a lot of weightlifters and exercisers are very adamant about meal preparation, and they will talk about meal preparation for hours. Um, so the food is serving a sense of or providing a sense of identity and structure. And if they can order their food and keep everything nice and compartmentalized, it kind of represents to me maybe what they're doing with their, with their emotions. It could just be good planning because there's a lot to it, but... Um, Self-punishment or punishment of the body. Now, that can be either restricting food or just gorging on food. It's like, I don't care. I don't care if I get fat. I don't care if I get hypertension or diabetes. I just, I want to eat and I don't care what the consequences are. To cleanse or purify the self, this is more the starvation or switching over to something like liquid diets. Creating a small or large body. For protection or safety and there was a lot of theory and i think some of it's still there it's kind of psychoanalytic in nature that eating disorders can be a rebellion against sexual abuse um, and sexuality uh, and avoidance of in intimacy thinking about you know how does all this work well it could be that the person's eating symptoms prove that they're bad instead of blaming others for example their abusers so if they're eating um, and, and they're gaining weight, they're seeing themselves as bad, lazy, disgusting, um, which is maybe how they feel. Maybe they feel broken. Maybe they feel violated and powerless. Um, and so they're externalizing that. It can be an expression of and defense against early childhood needs and feelings. Abandonment issues and overly enmeshed or overly detached parenting style the child believes it's too scary to need anything, so they try not to even need food. It's like, you know what? No, I'm not going to go there. Destructive and self-affirming attitudes. I will be the thinnest girl at my school, even if it kills me. An assertion of self and punishment of self. I insist on eating whatever and whenever I want, even though being fat is making me miserable. I deserve it. And it can be used as self-soothing, psychologically holding the person together, where they believe if I don't, eat, then I'm anxious and distracted. After I eat, I can calm down and get things done. So we want to look at the, I can't say it enough, the function of the food instead of the food itself, instead of just the act of eating. If you break that act, if you say, okay, you're not going to eat anymore um, when you get stressed, you got to give them something else to salt, serve in its place. You can't just say, well, when you're stressed, you can't eat. Okay. So when I'm stressed, what am I supposed to do? Uh, we have to give them alternatives that meet the same function that food is meeting. Signs and symptoms. Person frequents, 
frequently craves certain foods. And again, we want to rule out any nutritional deficits, but a lot of times we're looking at high fat, high carb foods, or foods that have a specific emotional tie um, for the person. You often eat even when you're not hungry. You eat much more than you intended to, sometimes to the point of feeling excessively stuffed. We've all been there, but do you do it with regularity? You often feel guilty after eating particular foods. And when you start identifying or when you have a person that starts identifying good foods and bad foods, and bad foods aren't because they are physiologically harmful to them, they have like bad celiac disease or something, um, but they're labeling them as bad foods because they're either high fat, high sugar, have gluten, whatever. Um, those are things that we want to start looking at. The person sometimes makes excuses in their heads about why they should eat something that they're craving. You know, it's this whole borrow from Peter to pay Paul. Well, I only had so many calories today, and, you know, if I eat this now, it'll help me focus, and then, you know, tonight I'll just have broth for dinner or something. And they do all these mental gymnastics in order to justify eating whatever it is then. But a lot of times then when they get to the evening and they're supposed to have broth, they eat something else, and then they feel guilty, and it causes a lot of dysphoria. Um, you have repeatedly tried to quit eating or setting rules, including cheat meals and days about certain foods, but been unsuccessful. And if you hang around a gym very much, if you work with athletes, bodybuilders, you hear a lot about cheat meals, and drives me a little bonkers, um, because I know that Cheat days are days where it's a free-for-all, and they eat really clean, they eat really meticulously planned food six days a week, and that seventh day, anything goes. I mean, all the pasta, all the fat, all the sugar that they could possibly eat, and then Monday they go back to eating metic meticulously. And they work out enough that a lot of times they don't gain a lot of weight from it, um, but just that weekly binge. I mean, they, they basically schedule in a weekly binge. You hide your consumption of unhealthy foods from others. If you notice or clients are talking about hiding foods in their bedroom or hiding foods in the car so their spouse doesn't know how much they eat, um, those are things that we want to identify and talk about why they feel the need to hide those foods. You feel unable to control your consumption of unhealthy foods despite knowing that they're causing, causing you physical harm. This includes excessive weight gain. Now, a few pounds is a few pounds. You may be below your biological set point. We're talking about when you get into the clinically obese range where you can start having heart problems, blood pressure issues, etc. You eat certain foods so often or in such large amounts that you start eating food instead of working, spending time with the family, or doing recreational activities. So somebody may start eating, you know, when they get home from work. And they just don't even stop eating until they go to bed at night. They, they don't do the laundry. They, they're not hanging out with their kids. Or if they are, it's kind of in addition to eating. Um, so other things that they could be doing are getting put off because they're more focused on eating. And a lot of their hobbies kind of get let go. I crochet. You know, I couldn't eat and crochet at the same time. So if I was eating from the time I got home until... You know, until I went to bed, I would never get any of my projects done. Um, they avoid social situations where certain foods are available because of fear of overeating. So avoiding birthday parties because there's cake there. 
having problems functioning effectively at their job or school because of food and eating. They're always thinking about eating. They're always thinking about food. When you cut down on certain foods, excluding caffeinated beverages, you have symptoms such as anxiety and agitation. Um, now, when you cut down on caffeine, a lot of times people feel a little bit more depressed and have headaches and feel more lethargic. Um, but when you cut down on craving foods, soothing, self-soothing foods, then you don't have anything replace. If you don't have anything replacing it, then those feelings that you were trying to suppress come to the surface. Eating foods causes problems such as depression, anxiety, self-loathing, or guilt. How do you feel after you eat a big meal? Um, and some of our clients may not have huge problems except for around parties and gatherings and holidays. And okay, that's fine. If that is anxiety producing for you, let's talk about it. And how can you deal with those? And we're, we've got some interventions later in the presentation on ways that they can deal with those types of situations so they don't have to avoid them. Other signs, changes in mood. Labeling food as good or bad and having these categories. Finding reasons to move more and more foods over to that bad category so you're not tempted to overeat on them. Sometimes you'll find people who are restricted and there's only like three or four things that they will eat. Thinking nutritionally, likely not meeting their needs unless there is some just overriding medical reason that they can't eat 99% of the food in the, in the grocery store. Restrictive dieting. You see people try to compensate. If they overeat, they may try to restrict or overexercise for the next 24, 48 hours. Eating in secret or sneaking food, feeling out of control with food, rewarding themselves or treating themselves with food. And again, this is in and of itself not a problem. But if they're using an event as an excuse to eat, as an excuse to overeat, we may be looking at an unhealthy relationship with the food. Thinking about food all the time, feeling unsatisfied even after meals. Let me go back to thinking about food all the time. If somebody is underweight, they are going to ruminate on food a lot more often. That's just the body's way of going, hey, I need calories. I need glucose. Um, so as people's weight starts to stabilize where it's supposed to be, constant ruminations tend to decrease. They don't go away completely if that's what's causing the ruminations. If you're thinking about food all the time to avoid thinking about other stuff, then normalizing weight's not probably going to do anything. Feeling unsatisfied even after mealtimes? Well, if you were eating to de-stress instead of eating for nutrition, um, you probably weren't eating mindfully and you're probably still stressed. So after the meal's over, you're like, well, that didn't do it. Uh, weight fluctuations, difficulty managing weight, body dissatisfaction, and feeling disgusted, guilty, or upset after eating. One thing that you see in people with eating disorders, um, and, and to a certain extent binge eating, but more um, anorexia and bulimia, is disinhibition. And it's the tendency to overindulge after they believe they've already overeaten. So if they accidentally eat, you know, they're, they're at lunch, and instead of having one slice of pizza, they have three, then they feel guilty about that. So to quell their guilt, they end up eating more. They figure, you know, all is lost, and they tend to overeat. And they've done some studies with that where they showed, where they had um, two groups of participants drink a shake. 
one group of participants was told the shake had 200 calories. The other group was told the shake had 800 calories, and they were told to drink it. The group that drank the drink that was supposed to be 800 calories tended to consume more calories the rest of the day um, than the group that had 200 calories and didn't think they had already overeaten. So disinhibition can even kick in for people who don't have an eating disorder, but for people who do, it tends to be more problematic because of the guilt and the shame and the disgust they feel with themselves after they believe they've overeaten. So myths. Food addiction is an excuse for overeating. False. Someone with a food addiction is using food to cope and activate reward pathways to help them feel calm or normal. Any emotional eating is wrong. Again, false. Just like having a few drinks occasionally after a hard day does not qualify a person as an alcoholic, occasionally eating to self-soothe is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. We've all had those days. We've gone home and looked in the refrigerator and been like, uh, ice cream or whatever your comfort food is. Once in a while, as for what it is, you know, it's not a problem. If it triggers feelings of shame, loathing, guilt, depression, you know, and starts causing problems in life, then it becomes a bigger issue. So I don't want to shame people, you know, and I want to make sure people don't shame themselves if they occasionally, you know, eat in order to, in response to unpleasant feelings. Our society actually teaches us to self-soothe through food. So one would expect using that as a fallback occasionally. And as I pointed out earlier, from the time you're knee-high to a grasshopper, food is used as a reward, food is used as to help people comfort, food is used during happy situations. So you start associating food with coping to a certain extent. And to top it off, you know, a lot of these foods tend to release um, positive neurotransmitters that help people feel calmer. Myths. Abstinence is the key. False. Unlike addiction to illicit drugs, a person cannot quit eating. Elimination of an entire food or food group is rarely recommended as it makes it more likely for a binge. So if you say, I am never going to eat chocolate again, it makes it more likely for a binge. I decided peanut butter is one of my weaknesses, and I decided to give peanut butter up for Lent. And I look at that peanut butter jar in the, in the cabinet, and I'm just like, oh, my friend, when you can, can you come back to me? Now, unhealthy relationship maybe, but that aside. Um, if for, I had, you know, nothing holding me back, and I said, I'm not going to ever eat peanut butter again, then when it was around, I might be tempted to say, okay, well, j- just this one time, and then overindulge on it. So, you know, binging can't, you can't set yourself up for binging with, extreme restrictions. Um, One of my colleagues who is a nutritionist used to have some ideas, like if chocolate is your thing, get the um, snack size packs. So when you want one, you can eat, you can eat a whole bag of them, but a whole bag is like 100 calories. Um, You can keep certain foods in the refrigerator so it takes longer to eat like chocolate and peanut butter. Or you can rely on getting those foods when you are not at home. So you don't have them sitting around the house. If M&Ms are your thing, you can get M&Ms out of the vending machine at work, you know, when once a day or something. And it's easier to control that than it is if you've got a three-pound bag of M&Ms sitting in your cabinet. Um, 
Since one addiction will likely be replaced by another, understanding and awareness of why the person is eating is more important than just eliminating the food. If we look and we see that they're eating a lot of the high-fat, high-sugar foods, we do want to evaluate for depression, and we do want to evaluate for what is potentially causing what might be a neurochemical imbalance. You know, why is it they have a need for this increased serotonin? And we can look at coping skills, sleep, you know, a lot of things that may contribute to that. But we do want to make sure we're addressing whatever's causing the underlying neurochemical imbalance. Binge eating is caused by certain foods. Now, binge eating is caused by a need to numb, escape, or feel pleasure. Highly processed foods are more likely to activate these reward pathways due to their easy digestion and prior conditioning. And they've done studies that have shown that the more processed a food is, the more of a, a more of a rush, if you will, people get. And you can kind of think of that um, like when you take an illicit drug. If you take it orally, it takes longer to get in the system. If you process it and do what you need to do so you can inject it, you know, it's highly processed at that point, and then it goes straight into the veins. Um, When you eat highly processed foods, your body doesn't have to do as much to break it down, so it can get into your system faster. And a lot of times the high sugar content um, makes your insulin just go up. Okay, food addiction is the same as loving food. No. People who love food can stop eating when needed or when they decide to. Food is not serving a protective function here. There, I love food. That's one of the reasons I run, because I love food. Um, and so understanding that there's a difference between really liking food and being a foodie or a food connoisseur is different than food addiction, so to speak. Interventions. Now we're to the good part. Certain foods are more rewarding, so get those foods out of your house for now. Temporal separation, so being, you know, not in the same place with the food, and extra effort required will make accessing foods less rewarding. It's like when I work with somebody who's trying to quit smoking. I'll say, if you have to have cigarettes around, if you're trying to taper or whatever, keep your cigarettes in your car. That way, at 10 at night, you've got to put on your shoes and go outside and get them out of your car. Um, Same thing with food, like I talked about earlier. If there are certain foods that you tend to binge on, leave those for when they're out of their out of their home, so they're not uh, as tempted. Especially when they're, you know, feeling a little bit more tired and their defenses may not be as strong. Make sure there are lower calorie rewarding alternatives like apples and bananas, Um, and and sugar as as. Stephanie says, sugar begets sugar. When we eat sugar, and I guess I'm going to jump ahead to physiological reactions, your blood sugar is here. And, you know, you're feeling kind of blah. So you eat something really sugary, and you go up here. You have a blood sugar spike. Well, that's great, but then your blood sugar crashes, but it doesn't go down to where you were before to that blah level. It goes down further. So then what do you want to do? Eat sugar again, and you spike again. But then you crash and crash even lower than before. And it's just this downward, almost like the stock market's doing, um, downward spike and crash sort of thing that uh, can be detrimental, which is why sugar begets sugar. So we want to have them have lower calorie rewarding alternatives at first. Apples especially, more so than bananas, um, but both of them are definitely better than 
pastries or, or chocolate or something. They're sweet, they require chewing, and they tend to have some fiber. Apples have more fiber to them, so they tend to be more satisfying to people. It will help ease the transition. Even if you're emotionally eating, it can help reduce the guilt a little bit until we can help that person develop really effective alternative coping skills. Encourage them to only eat at the table and without the television on. So they're not eating in the kitchen. They're not eating at their desk while they're working. They're not eating in the car, at the movies, wherever. Um, they're e if they're eating, they are sitting down at the table. Encourage closing the kitchen at a certain time. So have them go in and, and um, clean up the kitchen, get rid of the dishes, you know, everything's pretty. After you go through all that work, you don't want to have dirty dishes in the sink in the morning when you wake up. So closing the kitchen can be effective for people who are kind of kitchen neat freaks like me. Consider medication. And I'm not a huge fan of medication, but studies have shown that for about 40% of people, um, medication can help reduce binge episodes. Vyvanse is one, which is approved by the FDA to treat binge eating disorder. Um, they also have found a lot of effectiveness using Zoloft and Prozac with people who have binge eating issues because those deal more with keeping the serotonin up, obviously, because they're selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And if you're eating to increase serotonin, then it makes sense that if you've got more serotonin, then you might not feel as much of a compulsion to binge. Have clients identify other tools. Have them get four sheets of paper, and they can do this the first day that they start seeing you. Um, go home, get four sheets of paper, one for each of, well, I added one, so five sheets of paper, one for each of the following feelings, boredom, anxiety, anger, depression, and loneliness. On each sheet, identify three or more things that you can do to alleviate that feeling. What do you do that helps? What have you done in the past that helps when you're feeling this way? Um, so... They can call or message somebody, go on a walk or a run, listen to music, clean the house, surf the internet to learn about. If you just say surf the internet, it can be, you know, what am I going to look at? I just, I don't know. If they have a target, if they have a goal, so they're going to learn about buildings or the solar energy or something, gives them something to focus on. Have them journal. There are other things that pet their dog, play with their dog, take their kid to the park, whatever works for them. Get a baseline. For a week, have them keep a food journal of what they eat, how much, whether or not they were hungry, what their emotional state was, what they ate, and the amount. And some people will also add on there, what were you craving? Salty, spicy, sweet, sour. Um, and keep track of that. That gives us a baseline of and helps people realize when they're eating for things other than, for reasons other than being hungry. Um, when they identify comfort foods, because they will, they'll identify times they were eating, and even though they were filling out that diary, they ate anyway. They weren't hungry, but gosh darn it, they wanted to eat. So, okay, you know, what, what does that comfort food remind you of? Why was that food soothing at that point? And what function? did it serve? Why did you want to eat right then? And it could be it was just a craving. It sounded really good. I know at night when I'm watching TV, I get frustrated because they're constantly showing all these, you know, fried chicken, fried this, high sugar, that on the, on the t television. And I don't even eat those things normally. But at nine o'clock at night, I'm looking at them going, 
that looks really good. Um, thankfully, I'm way too lazy to get up and drive into town. Okay, after the first week, they've gotten an idea of how often they do it. And just by keeping this journal, they're probably going to reduce how frequently they emotionally or habit eat because they're going to be more aware and it's, they're going to start writing it down and go, you know what? I'm not that hungry. Uh, encourage them to keep, continue to keep that same food journal. This time, we're going to ask, am I hungry? What is my emotional state? If I'm not hungry, what can I do instead? And if they ate, the food eaten an amount. I find for a lot of people, and for myself included, if I have to go through all this and fill it out before I can eat, a lot of times it's just not even worth the effort to eat. And that starts helping to break the patterns because then they can look back and go, you know what? I felt this before and I didn't want to fill out the journal. I didn't eat and I was fine. You know, I, I can probably do it now. Encourage people to do 15. If they're not hungry, have them drink a glass of water or tea or whatever. Then do something else for 15 minutes. Many times the craving will pass. We know that cravings and urges usually crest within 15 or 20 minutes and then go out. So if we can get them to quit thinking about it and do something else for 15 or 20 minutes, it can help. Break the habit. Identify times you regularly eat when you're not necessarily hungry and plan for those times, such as right after dinner. And I'm guilty of this. You know, once I eat dinner, then I'm kind of grazing for a while unless I say no. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go outside and play with the dog or I'm going to go downstairs and mop the floor. So have activities that you do right after eating in order to stop that eating behavior. Another one could be cleaning the kitchen, but that's what my daughter's for. Um, on the weekends, a lot of people overeat because there's no structure to the day and they find themselves grazing more. My stepmother used to say she could take off that last 20 pounds if she does, just were able to work on the weekends. Um, so put in schedule to your day. And if you're one of those people who eats while you watch the football game, you know, if you're going to, make, make yourself sit at the table. You may find that you'd rather sit on the couch than eat. Uh, same thing for watching television. You know, Try not to eat when the television is on. Do something else to keep your hands busy. If the television's on, it should be um, activating, activating your mind and occupying you. So a lot of times people that eat when they're just sitting on the couch, they're eating just because it's what they do and they need something to do with their hands. So have them find something to do with those. Great suggestion for helping, pe uh, helping people know when to eat is to set alarms to remind them to eat if they forget to eat. The other thing is to encourage them to, when the alarm goes off, check in with themselves and go, am I really hungry? Because sometimes you're not hungry yet. You had a bigger breakfast than you usually do or something. And encourage them to do a mindfulness scan and figure out, am I hungry right now? What is it that I'm needing? And restrictive dieting. Because restricting often leads people feeling emotionally and physiologically deprived. So then, you know, it's more likely you're going to eat more later. It also creates havoc on your base metabolic rate. If you're doing a lot of restrictive dieting, your body goes, oh, there's a famine. So I need to turn down the thermos a little bit, which reduces your base metabolism. So then when you go back to eating what you normally would eat, you start gaining weight and you're like, I can't hardly eat anything anymore without gaining weight because your body has accommodated because it's preparing for that famine that might be coming again.
Identify any nutritional deficiencies that are causing cravings and follow a structured meal plan. It doesn't have to be super rigid. It can be. I mean, you can get one of those meal plans that has, you know, tells you exactly what and how much to eat at every meal. Or you can have something a little bit more loosey-goosey that says, I'm going to have a protein, a, a grain, a vegetable at this meal. And then you can choose from there. But it sets some parameters on what you should have. Identify triggers and ways to deal with them. So you're, if you're a habit eater, look at what's triggering that habit. Is it a time of day, what you're doing, such as sitting on the, on the couch or um, when you just get home? What are your visual triggers? Restaurants, um, the color orange, not, not orange, the color yellow, red, and brown tend to make us hungrier. Um, they also remind us, I mean, think about Pizza Hut and Subway and um, uh, Little Caesars Pizza. Oranges, browns, and yellows That's and, and reds, and that's kind of what we're looking at. So that encourages you to want to eat more. But there are also things that when you go to a restaurant, you're obviously going to want to eat, and it may want, because you're at a restaurant, you may feel like you need to order a full, you know, entree or something. Other people eating can be a visual trigger. So even if you're not hungry at dinner time, if the rest of the family's eating, you may sit down to eat. So how can you deal with that so you don't feel guilty, like you're overeating afterwards? Uh, television. Television, like I said, there are certain commercials that can trigger you to want to eat. So sometimes you got to change the, change the channel. And I've been known to do that with the ASPCA commercial because it upsets me. But you can do the same thing with food commercials if it triggers you. And what are your smell triggers? Sometimes smelling, you know, you can wake up and, in the morning and you smell toast or bacon or coffee and you're like, oh, I'm hungry now. Uh, encouraging people to be aware of those. When I go to the mall and I walk past a Cinnabon, oh my gosh, it makes me hungry for half a second. Um, so recognizing what may be a trigger and planning for how to deal with those things if you don't want to eat them right then. Eliminate vulnerabilities. Inadequate sleep. Sleep is when your brain regulates, sets your circadian rhythm, and your satiation and hunger hormones, ghrelin and leptin, are both regulated at that point. So if you're not getting good quality sleep at a relatively regular time, your body may not know when it's supposed to eat or be satiated. So you may kind of disrupt those hunger hormones. Dehydration. Sometimes people get the feeling that they're hungry because they're dehydrated. They start craving salty foods. Well, when you crave salty foods, then you typically drink water or drink fluid with it. So that can be something. Educating people so they realize that caffeinated drinks are diuretics. Regular sodas um, that have sugar and or caffeine in them are going to tend to dehydrate. So you want to counteract that. If you're dehydrated, you want to drink water. Um, juice if you have to, but preferably water or some permutation thereof. Eliminate boredom. Schedule time in your day so you don't have a lot of downtime until you get used to not eating at certain times. Address mood issues such as depression, anxiety, anger, and stress, which can make you want to eat to self-soothe or eat at someone. I've had clients do that with, with drugs as well as food, saying, you know what, he made me so mad, I'm just going to eat at him. And uh, this particular case, the in the relationship, the woman was very 
concerned about her shape and size and everything, and she felt that that made her lovable. So by overeating, it was a way to punish her significant other. Find healthy substitutes for the often unhealthy comfort foods, preferably natural foods such as fruits, nuts, whole grain crackers, or vegetables, um, and keep them prepared. You know, have food around. Put food away. If it's on the counter, people are more likely to munch on it. Rid your house of unhealthy options and don't use children as, a, as an excuse. You don't have to buy the Cocoa Pops just because you've got little kids at home. Don't use placeholders like sugar-free ice cream or low-fat this and gluten-free that. If you're eating, you're probably increasing serotonin and, um, and, and dopamine levels. So you want to, again, why are you eating? Eat mindfully. Chew mindfully. That one I can't do. I can eat mindfully, but if I chew mindfully, the sound of my chewing just grosses me out. But you can try. Breathe. Deep breathing can be relaxing. So if people take a few deep breaths before they go in to eat, they may find that they're not thinking about food anymore. Have them go for a walk or exercise. Peer pressure to eat and drink can be a significant challenge. So have them balance their eating on the day of the occasion. The total caloric intake for the day will matter. So they may want to save those calories. Thanksgiving dinner. I know we've always done it in our family where we get up and we eat a meager breakfast, you know, just a little bit to break the fast. And then we have Thanksgiving dinner at like two. So it's a little bit after lunchtime, but before dinner time. So nobody's, you know, ravenously hungry. Um, and throughout, we typically have vegetable plates and stuff out. Um, drink water. Don't drink calories at these occasions. So have your water in a proper glass, maybe with lemon. Um, if you can avoid drinking, you know, especially at occasions where you're at a party or something, you tend to be there for a while. So you can drink several Cokes or whatever it is. That Each Coke, you know, regular with sugar in it, has a lot of calories in it. So does liquor, but that's a whole different issue. Um, encourage people to drink water so the calories that they're eating, they're actually savoring. They're chewing. They're tasting instead of just gulping. Never order pastries or desserts for yourself. You can sample a friend's if you want to. Some people are not okay with that. Um, try to make these events more about the company than about the food. And that's something you can plan ahead with in, in counseling. You know, this Thanksgiving dinner's coming up. Let's talk about the company that's going to be there. Who are you excited to see? What are you going to talk about? How can you focus on what's going on and, and spending time with people instead of the food? If needed, avoid the social occasions until you can manage yourself at those social events. So if people go to those social events, they end up overeating anyway, and then they feel guilty and disgusted and it sets them back, I don't want them doing it unless they feel they have to. But if they can avoid them, while they're feeling vulnerable, then it might be something to consider. And encourage people not to overcorrect the next day. Just go back to doing what they were doing. Even if they overate one day, what you do most of the time is what's going to matter. Overcorrecting just results in a feeling of deprivation, cravings, and binging. So food, especially processed foods, activate the brain's pleasure circuits. For some, more than others. And... The research seems to indicate that people with low serotonin, you know, those people who tend to have, tend to be more depressed or low dopamine levels, tend to feel more reward from food than people who have average 
serotonin and dopamine balance levels. People may have food addictions if they're spending more time than intended preparing to eat, eating, or recovering from eating. Eating for reasons other than hunger, foregoing other interests so they can eat. You know, they're not going to go out with their girlfriends because they'd rather stay home and order pizza in. Um, It's not about relaxing. It's more about, I want pizza. Experiencing guilt or shame about eating. The first step is to figure out what you are eating and why. Is there a physiological reason? Um, And charting it over the course of a month can help you see potential cycles, whether it's due to your sleep cycles or your hormonal cycles or anything like that. You might be able to connect those with serotonin levels or just your general mood and connect it with your eating. So you want to see what patterns might be going on within you that are triggering eating. Um, Identify triggers and interventions for non-hunger eating. How How can you prevent it? And if you are triggered to eat by a commercial or a smell, what are you going to do? Some people will carry a little tiny vial of essential oils with them. And certain essential oils like grapefruit um, have been known to have appetite suppressant effects. So if they smell something that triggers them, they may smell something else. Um, Explore other ways you can deal with stress, anxiety, anger, depression, or boredom. Eliminate vulnerabilities by getting enough rest and proper nutrition so you're not setting yourself up for a binge. And address any underlying mental health issues. Um, You can um, suggest clients go meet with dietitians who will help them identify foods that they can eat. Um, Some dietitians will recommend eating multiple small meals throughout the day in order to keep blood sugar stable. Some will say it's better to give your system a rest so you don't become um, uh, insulin, insulin sensitive. I don't know, um, but it, it depends on the person, on how often they should eat and what they should eat. So it's important to recognize that uh, in every state, it is a, in order to give pre- prescriptive advice about nutrition, you need to be a registered dietitian or a re- registered nutritionist with the state in order to do it and not be outside your scope of practice. Um, but Educating people, pointing them to good books that they can read and make decisions are, is definitely helpful. And, you know, helping them identify local resources where they might be able to get information about proper nutrition. A lot of times your local health department will have a nutritionist that is um, available for people to consult with. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe either in your podcast player or on YouTube. You can attend and participate in our live webinars with Dr. Snipes by subscribing at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. This episode has been brought to you in part by allceus.com, providing 24-7 multimedia continuing education and pre-certification training to counselors, therapists, and nurses since 2006. Use coupon code counselor toolbox to get a 20% discount off your order this month.